You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Before we get to talking about a soul, we want to talk about what is a human being and what, do they com- what makes up the human being. So who are we really? This is what we're trying to understand. And uh, when you ask people, who are you? And I've done this in classes. People will say, well, I am the me that I look up in the morning, that I look at when I get up and I brush my teeth and look in the mirror. Some people say, I am my feelings, right? In our society, we're very much focused upon feelings and emotions. Some people will say, I am my thoughts. The thoughts race around in my head all day long. And some people, if you'd ask me, I'd say, my view on it is that I am my personality. I am my qualities, my human traits. Um, that's another option. So who is the real me? What is, what is my me? What is my real true self? Rabbi Ari Kaplan has a very interesting article on the soul and the afterlife. And he says this, he says that in the middle ages, people thought that the person was their heart, right? Um, the heart is the seat of the emotions. And they started doing heart transplants. So if Sam gets Joe's heart, who is he? Is he Joe? Whose heart he's gotten? So we know that the heart is not the person. The heart is a metaphor for the emotions because we feel emotions strongly in our heart. But uh, really the person is much more than that. So then Rabbi Kaplan asks, well, what if I could take all the data in a person's head, take all the memories in a person's brain and transfer them. What if Sam got all of Joe's memories? We wiped out his hard drive, downloaded Joe into Sam. Who would he be? Would he be the Sam that he wakes up and sees in the morning? Would he be the Joe whose memory he now has? As I said before, if, if we are our personalities, then maybe he's really still Sam, right? Because he might have Joe's memories. Uh, these movies where someone gets amnesia, right? They have their memory knocked out and they kind of have to refine themselves, yet it's still them. So then Rabbi Kaplan asks, well, what if we are able to do brain transplants, which might not be so crazy anymore because with stem cells, they are starting to rejoin uh, neural tissue. So what if I, uh, we were able to put Sam's, Joe's brain into Sam? Ah, so now we're kind of feeling, well, maybe it's Joe, not Sam anymore, right? And the, here we see that we not, aren't necessarily, me, myself, is not necessarily my physical body, but it's something more abstract. And the Torah's view is, in fact, that, that really the true me is my divine soul, my nishmat eloki. And this beautiful prayer we say in the morning, uh, we say this prayer waking up every day. We say, my God, the soul you placed within me is pure. You created it, you formed it, you breathed it into me, 
You preserve it within me. You will take it from me and restore it to me in the hereafter. As long as the soul is within me, I offer thanks before you, Lord my God and God of my fathers, master of all creatures, Lord of all souls. Blessed are you, O Lord, who restores souls to those who are dead. Now, why do we say to those who are dead? Because uh, according to the Zohar, the Kabbalah, our soul leaves us at night. And in a sense, every morning when we wake up is a miracle that our soul is back within us. And so we think, you know, the body, you sleep it, you feed it, you rest it, and it goes on. But we have to have the soul come back to us. So, uh, so the other thing is that we spend so much of our day taking care of our bodies, right? Wake up, take a shower, dress, work, make money to provide for our bodies. But do we ever think about how much we invest in nurturing our souls in taking care of our souls? Do we ever think about how we need to, first of all, just touch base with our souls? And then whether it's through meditation and prayer, um, Torah study, to go through our day at least with an awareness of my soul self as well as my physical self. That's really what this blessing is trying to get us to do. But before we really figure out how to do that, we have to figure out what is the soul. So at the beginning of Genesis, it says God took from the dust of the earth and then he formed man and he breathed into man the breath of life and Adam became a living being. We'll see that word neshama again, neshima's breath. Became a nefesh, a being. And uh, this is the fundamental teaching that the human being is a physical being and a spiritual being as well, which comes from the divine. That's the blessing we just said. God created this divine soul and infused it within us. The Mishnah in Sanhedrin has a very beautiful teaching where it says something additional. It says that why did God create man from one unique person? Why not create, you know, dozens, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions at the beginning of creation? And the answer given is to teach us that every human being is unique. Every human being has their own unique self and mission that they have to accomplish. And so it's the corollary of that is that therefore it says anyone who saves one life, it's as if they saved an entire universe. Bibi Netanyahu recently quoted to this about Israel's outlook on fighting the coronavirus. And he said, every human being is precious and we're going to do everything to make sure that everyone is safe and taken care of. And we can proudly say that Israel only had 260 some deaths from the coronavirus, from a country of over 9 million. So the soul is what's unique within us. That much we know already. But what else? What more is there about it? And in order to know how to live with our souls and through our souls, we have to understand the soul. 
According to the Kabbalah, there are five parts to the soul. Uh, there is the nefesh, which is the life force, or the animal soul. That's the lowest part. There is the, and we'll go through each one of these again, explaining them. There is the ruach, which you could translate as the spirit. Ruach literally means wind. Uh, these are the emotions, the spirit, the higher sensitivities, and free will. There is the nishama, which is the divine soul, from the word nishima, the breath of God within us. This is the part of us that yearns for transcendence, yearns for meaning, the part of us that's purely good, and that is good and pure. So, those are the first three levels. The fourth and the fifth are the Chaya and the Yechida. The Chaya is the universal energy connection, and the Yechida is the connecting to the unity of all. And the Chaya and Yechida we don't really talk about because they, in a sense, are... We don't really consciously have connection to the Chaya and the Yechida. They're there connecting us to higher spiritual realms, but, um, but we don't have awareness of them. And the problem, the challenge with the soul is that it's abstract, right? Like, how do I, you know, get a grip on it? How do I conceive of it? So in the Victorian area, it's very interesting. Um, they were very into the parapsychology, the mystical. Uh, they would have seances. And um, they... they uh, they tried to measure the soul. So they would measure a person who was about to die right before. Then the person would pass away and they would immediately measure them after to prove that their soul had left. And of course, they didn't come up with much because we don't view that the soul is a physical thing. It's a metaphysical being. Um, and to understand it better, let's go back through the three levels of the soul and try to understand how they make up ourselves and who we are. So the nefesh, if we said the first, so the three-part system, first of all, uh, sounds very reminiscent of uh, another Jewish thinker who presented man as three parts. The id, the superego, and the ego. And that's none other than Sigmund Freud, who, um, interestingly enough, had a very complicated relationship with Jewish tradition. He wrote a book called Moses and Monotheism, where he kind of um, uh, rejected the divine higher source of the Torah and viewed it as a human-made work. Um, but interestingly enough, his father apparently studied Talmud and it's probably no coincidence that in the Talmud there are pages and pages of dream interpretation. Of course, the linchpin of Freud's psychological system. And also, the Torah has a three-part uh, psycho system of psychology, three-part makeup of the human being. And so we see the parallels. The id, the physical body, the nefesh. The superego, the conscience, the neshama. And the ego mediating between the two. So let's look at each one. So nefesh. Nefesh means to rest. In the end of the Kiddush on Shabbat, we see, Yom Hashvi Shabbat Vayi Nafash. And God rested. 
So the nefesh is the part of it that really just wants to rest, just wants to go to sleep, just wants to be left alone. And um, it's the part of us that also, though, drives us to maintain our physical self, right? In a sense, it just wants to go to sleep. Uh, that's what Freud called the will to death right? It wants just uh, daiquiris by the beach, leave me alone in front of my TV, couch potato, uh, surfing online, whatever it is. I just want to space out and forget myself. Uh, sometimes the nefesh does have the drive to self-preservation, so it'll push us to, um, it'll push us to, uh, you know, to take care of our physical self. It'll push us to make sure we're fed and comfortable. The more sophisticated versions are to have a nice house, to have a bigger house, a better car, a boat, brand items, right? But that really are just all nefesh. That's all just the body saying, I want, I want, I want, and often I want it now. And it's also the selfish part of us, the part of us that's a taker and not a giver and is just looking to satisfy ourselves. So, um, so that's the nefesh. That is the life force. And an animal also has a nefesh. An animal also has these drives to eat and procreate and have sexual pleasure, physical pleasure. Um, the lower drives power over others. Um, that's all part of the nefesh. Okay, now we come to the ruach. Ruach, as I said, literally means the wind, but we translate it more as the spirit, right? It's a part of the person that has some higher dimension, the emotions, uh, our personality, psyche, the aesthetic sense, right? Kind of that is touched by beautiful music and not just, not just appreciating its beauty, but we're moved by, it, we're transported by it. And the problem, though, with the ruach, uh, with the wind, is that it, it, it's just, it's, it doesn't have substance. It just gets blown around. So uh, the emotions can be very fickle. Uh, the personality can be strong, or it could not be. Uh, but sometimes the wind does blow what's around it. And so potentially the ruach is us taking control of our free will and directing our lives. So it does have that potential if we actualize it. Um, a very interesting teaching by Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, who lived in Germany, uh, mid 1800s. And he talked about, when he talked about the Ruach, he said, you know, the aesthetic sense, which of course was, uh, the, this was the height of the enlightenment in Germany, the arts, culture, all of these dimensions. And what he talked about was how the aesthetic can elevate a person and help them to come closer to God. It can inspire them. It can lead them towards transcendence. But he said, it's not, as I said before, it doesn't have, it's not anchored. And just as easily, the emotions, even the personality, can be turned to serve the desires of the body. And of course, he was very prescient because 50 years later, Nazi Germany 
which was the height of culture in Europe, turned into the height of brutality and the height of uh, animalism. So that's a word, probably not a word, uh, but animal drives being pushed to their ultimate, okay? And predatory drives being pushed to their ultimate and the will to death being pushed to its ultimate. So we have to draw on something else and that something else is the nishama and that is the divine soul. That's the part of us that's eternal. That's the part of us which lives on into the next world. Now nishama comes from nishima, which is breath, okay? Which is, uh, why is it the metaphor of breath? Because is the divine soul God? Is it us? Is it the godly within us? So Rabbi Ari Kaplan, once again, and by the way, anyone who's interested in Kabbalah, it's definitely, he's the address to start with. Um, he has several books, If You Were God, articles, soul, on soul in the afterlife. And um, his real book on Kabbalah is Inner Space, which is kind of an introductory primer. And there he talks about the analogy of the wind, the glass blower, which is found in the Kabbalistic teachings, which is that in a sense, uh, God uh, blow, is the glass blower. So the breath starts within the lungs of the glass blower. The origins of the soul, its root starts within the divine. It is not the divine, but it starts within the divine. It then comes up into the mouth, right? It goes through as wind through the, the, uh, the tube, and then it expands the glass and then rests. So nishima, the breath, that's the divine soul, goes through the tube, that is the spirit, the wind, and then it rests into the glass, that is the nefesh, the life force. And, um, and so the, the nishama, the divine soul, does has, uh, have its root in the divine. And the rabbis you have an expression, chelek elokim mimal, a portion, an aspect of the divine from above. It is an aspect of the divine, but not God. And that's the part of us. So what is it? That's the part of us that desires to do good, that desires to be a giver. That's the part of us that is seeking meaning. Um, years ago, when I took a year off and traveled around the world, so I remember I got to this beach, I hiked across the island of Crete and got to this beach that you couldn't get to. There were no cars. You could only get there by boat or if you were crazy hiking across mountains for two, three days without water, carrying all your water. And I remember getting there and lying on the beach and like, this is it. It's paradise, beautiful Aegean, white beaches. You lie there for a day, read a book, it's great. Second day, got a little fidgety, go in the water, come out of the water, read the book. By the third day, I was, that's it, I gotta move on. And why? Because while, you know, the pleasures uh, for the body are enjoyable, they don't have purpose and meaning. And ultimately, they can only provide a counterfeit currency for what we're really, really looking for. And that is 
to seek meaning, to make a difference, to connect to that which is above us and greater than us. You see, once again, we think you can just feed the body, rest it, clothe it, and everything will be fine. But, you know, mental, um, sorry, um, health care professionals will tell you that they have patients who, first of all, they know when they're on their way out of this world. They can just tell. They tell you this person is going to die. And we'll talk about more about that next week. But then they also say there was nothing physiological that really turned dramatically worse. I just saw they gave up the will to live. They stopped wanting to live. And so that really shows us that there's more than just the physical body. There's a, there's a will to live that we have to connect to. And that will to live is connected not just to the physical pleasures, not just to the instinct to survive, but has to be connected to something greater and something more than ourselves, right? So, so that is the neshama, the divine soul. And, uh, you know, sometimes, remember once I was leaving the synagogue and there was this survivor, old gentleman, who was in New York, who, who was there. And um, every morning, must have been in his early 90s, nice man. Um, and I had a very tight schedule that day. I was at services, cut out right after, bolting out the door. Just then, he's walking out. I try to go around him. Rabbi, you walk me to the bus station. I'm like, oh no, this is going to take like 15 minutes. I don't have time for this. Got so much to do. Stopped. Took a deep breath and said, okay, we're going to do this. And it was only two blocks. Took about 15 minutes. But I got to hear about life in pre-war Europe, about his, some of his experiences surviving. Like I was giving him a moment in his day that he could share himself with someone else. And that day I felt great. I felt like I'd really made a difference in someone's day. That is a real soul pleasure. Those are the true, true soul pleasures. And that's not the, uh, that's not the fake currency because, you know, shopping therapy might make you feel good a little bit for a little while, but it doesn't really give you a sense of meaning and a sense of deep satisfaction. And so it happens us that we're in a state of struggle. We're pulled in two directions. We're pulled by the nefesh, by the life force, by the animal soul, to focus upon our bodies, to listen to the needs of our bodies, to be driven by our bodies, whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's laziness. And we know if we just follow that, it's not gonna lead to real satisfaction. But we, we, we let ourselves get bought by the, by, the, uh, by the immediate pleasure. And the problem is also that the body is more, has more pizzazz, right? The pleasures of the body uh, hit us more in a kind of, uh, in a powerful way. The pleasures of the soul are much more subtle, much more deep. We have to tune into them to really feel them and to appreciate them. And so, 
Uh, and so often we lose the battle. But the goal is to win the war. And our soul really deep down does want to be uh, connected to meaning. Our soul wants purpose. Our soul wants to be giving. Our soul wants to do good. And you see this in a child. You see both sides in a child, right? A child is all about its needs. It cries. It wants to eat. It's uncomfortable. It wants to eat now. It whines. It wants the lollipop. Yet at the same time, a child can be very pure. A child has, first of all, a pure love. You get a hug from a two-year-old. There's nothing like it. And a child at three, four years old will start asking meaningful questions about what, what are we doing here? And why is the sky blue? And where is Hashem? So at the same time, you have this drive, purely physical, and you have this purity of the soul shining through. And so, um, and so we're, we're pulled in both directions. And we want a zombie out. We want, we're listening to the counterfeit currency of the physical pleasures and of laziness. And yet at the same time, deep down, we know that will not get us to where we need. And so our ruach, our free will has to, in a sense, play quarterback between the two. And so the Torah's approach is not to simply say, I have to snuff out the body. I have to eradicate the body. I've got to shut it out completely. Because um, the Torah doesn't want us to be just go off to an ashram and meditate. The goal is to get, because ultimately long term, for most people that will not work. And uh, vows of celibacy, of abstinence, most people will not last. So the Torah's strategy is to kind of... Um, get the soul to get the body to go along with the program of the soul and how do we do that so it's like when we give the child a candy to come to synagogue okay it's a little more sophisticated but the shabbat the day of spirituality is the day when we're supposed to get dressed up in our nicest clothes not to impress others but to feel a sense of dignity we're supposed to eat our best food on Shabbat, not to stuff our faces, but to enjoy the pleasure of God's world, to be, for our lives to feel enhanced and uplifted and enjoy. And it's the day for married people to have intimate relations because sex is something to be enjoyed and celebrated in a context which has meaning and purpose. So the goal in the Torah is to take the physical drives of the body and to uh, co-opt it for a higher purpose. And the analogy given is the horse and the rider, right? If you're not a good rider, sometimes the horse just takes over, starts to gallop. I remember uh, when I was younger and it was raining and I had this whole rain gear on with this rain hood. You remember the, ye the yellow rubber rain things? And the horse just started taking off and the thing was falling over my eyes. I was terrified. Um, and... Uh, the horse takes control. But really the goal is to pull in the stirrups, pull in the bit, and to get the, if you can get the horse in control and focused and listening to orders, it's so much more powerful than just walking on our own. So that's the analogy, is to get the 
uh, body behind the meaning and purpose of the greater things in life. And so, yes, it's good. It's okay to have a profession and make money. But is it just to serve myself or do I have higher goals? Do I have a goal to support a family and children? Right? Europe has given up on that, right? 1.6 children because uh, it costs too much and I'd rather just focus on me, on myself. Or do I have a greater purpose? Can I, I can give charity with it? I can have a nice home to, enter, to give hospitality to people. There's so much we can do with our physical lives. By the way, one of my teachers did say, you know, but there are times where you do have to simply uh, suppress certain physical drives. Now, Freud said, if you suppress the physical drives, you'll wind up um, with psychological issues. And it's interesting because Maybe that's true if you don't have a larger goal and you don't substitute it with the spiritual pleasures, with the meaning and purpose in one's life. But the Torah's view is the more we uh, starve the physical drives, the more we discipline them and have them under control, the less they will demand. It doesn't mean by eliminating any physical pleasure, but it means by keeping it in check, by having the self-discipline, by not going past that line where the horse is riding me instead of I am riding the horse. And if sometimes the horse is riding me, then I have to really pull in the stirrups and then I can let them out a little more. So, uh, so that's the kind of push-pull between the neshama, the divine soul, then the nefesh, the animal soul, and the ruach, the free will, which is trying to uh, trying to mediate. You have to come up with battle plans and you have to have, by the way, there's a whole book called Battle Plans of How to Deal with This um, by Sarah Rigler, great author. And you, the more we understand the dynamics and the nature of each of these and the Torah's wisdom on how to negotiate them, the more we'll be able to harness the power and connect to our divine soul. And um, as I said before, sometimes it's just stopping, taking a breath, seeing the beauty of the morning, the beauty of a sunset, and connecting to the most basic of physical, of, of pleasures of the world, and um, that elevate us and that inspire us. And so some of the strategies are, as we go through our day, have an awareness say, is this my lower voice talking or is this my higher voice speaking? And who do I want to listen to? If I do know it's my lower voice, do I really want to listen to my lower voice? Do I really want to be selfish and not giving? Do I really want to be tough on others and easy on myself rather than easy on others and tough on myself? Where is that critical voice coming from? With people I love most, why am I being more critical with them? Is that ego? Is that frustration? Is that self, being self-destructive? So ask ourselves, is this good for my soul? And, um, and to try and direct our lives and avoid the things that cause us to draw away from our soul and move towards the thing that are going to 
get us to connect on a deeper level. And as I said at the beginning, that we have, a, you know, we make sure that we have our meals, we make sure that we have nice clothes, we make sure we take care of the physical body. The idea is to make sure that we nurture our spiritual selves as well. So we get up in the morning, take a moment, as I said, to just enjoy, the, appreciate the sunshine and think about who I am and connection to the Almighty. Say a prayer, meditate and connect to my inner self. There's so many ways we can do it, but we have to stop, take the moment. And that's why the Torah builds into our day those moments where we touch base with our soul, because otherwise if we forget, we get diverted and we get distracted and we get fed uh, a fake currency, a counterfeit currency. So the opportunity comes to help someone, put my own needs aside, stop for a moment and get that thing from my neighbor. Stop and make a phone call for someone who's lonely, who doesn't have someone. Instead of, I have my goals, I have my agenda, I have my things to do. And uh, God willing, if we cultivate our soul and we check in with our soul, then we'll find the true spiritual pleasures that give us ultimate satisfaction. So um, we're going to continue next Sunday and start talking about the afterlife because as I said before, the soul is something very abstract. So how do we see more of the reality of the soul? And by looking at the Jewish view of the afterlife, and it's going to be more sophisticated than uh, pitchforks and lollipops, Jewish view of reward and punishment, the Jewish view of eternity, and uh, the Kabbalah has many teachings on what is the journey of the soul from this world to the next dimension of reality. So stay tuned for that next Sunday. Wednesday night in our Exceptional Jewish Personalities, we'll go, be talking about Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak Cook, the first chief rabbi of Palestine, and the Zionist mystic. Have a good evening.